Before we turn to our text in Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 12, and, and read the context there, I would invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, always fitting at this time of year to be reminded again of that familiar chapter. And actually, I want to back up to verse 13 of chapter 52 because that's where this portion really starts. And in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53 is the last of Isaiah's four servant songs that we find. In, in verse 1, he talks about, or God through Isaiah talks about his servant acting wisely, acting wisely, pointing to the fact that he would, he would know and he would perform the will of God. He would achieve that purpose. And then, and then Isaiah chapter 53 helps us to understand exactly how he would achieve that purpose. And we see that um, then open for us more when we come to the New Testament. So Isaiah chapter 52, beginning at verse 13, and then we'll turn over to Mark chapter 9. This is God's word, verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for 
the transgressors. We turn over to Mark chapter 9, and, and our text again, really the second part of verse 12, and we read this in the context of the transfiguration. It's not my purpose tonight to consider the, tra- the transfiguration in whole, but in, in its entirety, but, but we will consider it in somewhat of an extended introduction um, as we make our way to our text, verse 12. But Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The second part of verse 12, and how is it written? And that's also, we can also put it, and why, as we find it in some versions of Scripture. And how and why is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt or also be rejected? Beloved, may God bless the reading of his word and his consideration of it to us tonight. Well, dear people of God, we do find ourselves approaching that in our church calendar season, we find ourselves approaching, once again, those holy days that we call Good Friday and Easter. And of course, when it comes to the world in which we live, we know that the world around us, our society, has its own concept of Easter, complete with, with bunnies and decorated eggs and all kinds of candy and, and lots of commercialism. But the truth is, we live in and we live with the joy of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, not just one day or one short season of the year, but we live in and we live with the joy of our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ each and every day of our lives. And we do so knowing that His resurrection was, and it had to be preceded by His passion. Now, boys and girls and young people, Jesus' last week, His final week on earth, is called, at least often called, Passion week. Now in our context, when we think of the word passion, or when we think of something that is passionate, we most likely think of strong feelings about something or someone. But the word for passion means to suffer. And it has the idea of the experience of suffering. Christ's passion and death points to his suffering. 
Now we confess, of course, in the Heidelberg Catechism that all the days of his life he suffered. From the moment that he was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, from the moment that he began to take on that human flesh that was weakened by sin, and he was born into this world and lived for those 30 years, he suffered each and every day of his life in a certain way. But now we're talking specifically about his suffering at the end of his life, complete with his betrayal as well, his arrest, his trial, the, the, the beatings and the whippings that he endured, his journey to Golgotha, not to mention his crucifixion, dealing with all the physical pain that could be inflicted on him, and ultimately the pain of the wrath of God against sin all the way to death. It's good for us as we prepare in a few weeks to observe Good Friday and to celebrate Easter Sunday. It's good for us then to reflect on the passion and the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ and to consider together the question that he asked his disciples again in our text. And how is it or why is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt or be rejected? Now that question, beloved, is found in the amazing context, again, as we read it, of Christ's transfiguration. It's found as well in the context of his prediction of his death, and it's found in the context of the confusion and the misunderstanding on the part of his disciples, and especially with regard to the transfiguration event of Peter, James, and John. These three were given an amazing blessing of seeing the glory of Christ's divinity. As if that humanity that veiled his glory, that veil opened up for a time. And they were able to see the true nature, his true divine nature, his godly glory and his purity. And they were given to see that through a change in his outward appearance, clothes and all, unlike anything on earth, anything that could be done on earth as the text or as this passage clearly says. And they witnessed Moses representing the law of God as well. Uh, Elijah represented the prophets talking with Jesus about, as Luke puts it in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus came to fulfill obedience to the law of God. He came to fulfill the complete message of the prophets. And these two Old Testament saints, they knew what he came to do. They knew that he came to give his life, but not simply to give his life and end it there, but to rise again and to ascend into heaven, to take his throne and glory and to rule from there until... He comes again on the clouds of glory to judge the living and the dead. And then enter Peter. Peter, in consistent Peter fashion, says something ridiculous. Or as one commentator says of Peter, Peter speaks when there was nothing to speak about. But, you know, we probably shouldn't be too tough on him because it clearly says that they were terrified. And who wouldn't be as seeing something of that nature? They were afraid. But the gist of what Peter was suggesting was to keep this reunion going on earth, which would then only serve to keep Jesus from fulfilling his mission 
to which God the Father himself responds, revealing the identity of Jesus when he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Listen to him. Something reminiscent of what we find in Deuteronomy 18 when Moses is talking about a greater prophet to come. And he says, to whom you will listen. God the Father from heaven says to Peter, James, and John, listen to him. Up to this point, in a sense, they didn't want to listen to him. They didn't want to hear about his, his death. They didn't want to hear about anything like that. Listen to him. Listen to what he says about his suffering. Listen to what he says about the cross. And then in verses 9 and 10, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now we know, of course, that they understood the resurrection, the general resurrection. We know that from Martha, the sister of Lazarus, before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and Jesus said, he will rise again. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. They understood the the general resurrection, but they didn't understand this with regard to what was being spoken about, about, about Jesus. The disciples believed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Peter had given that amazing confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this appearance by Moses and Elijah was was an amazing confirmation of that very testimony. Yet they did not understand his purpose to save by means of his death. And even this transfiguration event would not make sense until after the resurrection. But just imagine... Once it became clear to them, imagine what they were able to hold on to for the rest of their lives. An amazing event. Jesus had just spoken about his resurrection from the dead, which implied that his death was near. But it not only seemed strange to them that the Messiah would have to die at all. But what bothers them is that it seemed that such a death would leave the messianic prophecy unfulfilled. Fulfilled. Verse 11 again, they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? That's exactly what the teachers of the law taught, that Messiah's coming would be preceded by Elijah's. And it makes sense. We, we can understand this because, uh, again, boys and girls and young people, those were the last words of the Old Testament some 400 years before. The Lord through Malachi in Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now Jesus here, he corrects their wrong thinking that it would be the literal Elijah of Mount Carmel fame. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus explained to them that Elijah had come and and what the scribes did to him, the disciples then understood that he was talking about John the Baptist, who came calling men to repent and to be reconciled to God, yet John the Baptist was rejected. They failed to recognize him. And in essence, Jesus is subtly teaching here, if so, the forerunner then so also the one whose way it was to be prepared. Our text again, and how is it written, why is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt or rejected? They had turned to Scripture. 
regarding what Scripture taught about Elijah, but now Jesus reminds them of another important message from Scripture that they had completely overlooked. And that is that the Messiah must suffer and be rejected. Psalm 22, Psalm 69. Psalm 118, they all, they're all messianic psalms, particularly talking about the suffering of the Messiah. You can read them for yourself, and then not to mention Isaiah chapter 53. Beloved, we know how he suffered. We can go to the very same passages, and especially back to Isaiah chapter 53, beginning at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And then a bit later we read, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then we can go to the gospel records and we can see the fulfillment of all that Isaiah prophesied. Beloved, we know how he suffered, and we know broadly and we know generally why he was rejected, namely because of sin. But I would suggest to you that that begs a further and a deeper question, why? Couldn't God have done anything? And the answer is both yes and no. Yes, He could have left all, including you and me, to perish. But no, in the sense that there was absolutely no other way to save His people. And therefore, after looking at this, as it were, from 35,000 feet, this, this passage, now we come down to our text and, and we, we ask again, why did Jesus have to suffer many things and be treated with contempt or be rejected? Well, first of all, because of God. Because of God Himself. Not in the sense that God is to be blamed, not in the sense that it's God's fault, but because of His being, because of who He is. We know from Scripture the attributes that which describe beautifully our God. He is majestic. He is sovereign. He is loving. He is merciful, to mention a few, but especially here because of His holiness. Because of His holy being. He is perfect. He is pure. He is absolutely free from sin and the stain of sin. He will have nothing to do with it. He dwells, as Scripture says, in unapproachable light. He is completely other in His holiness from absolutely everything that He has made. We sing, as we will uh, after this message, we sing that beautiful hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. In there, we sing two wonders, I confess. The wonders of His, His, His glorious or redeeming love and of my unworthiness. Dear people of God, the cross where Jesus Christ was rejected and forsaken by His Father is not to cause us to think of God as some sort of a cruel tyrant or horrible despot, but it ought to cause us to think of our God as holy and just. 
David says in Psalm 5, verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Not one sin. Not one tiny sin on the scale how we count sin oftentimes. Not even one tiny sin will be tolerated by God. Every single sin of yours and mine and of every human being in the world is and will be dealt with either by the Lord Jesus Christ it has been dealt with for those who believe in Him or it will be dealt with in those who reject Him. Not one sin is tolerated by God. Not one sin can be in His holy presence. And there is only one response of sinful man to the presence of God, whether that is again in this life through humility or one day when Jesus Christ comes again on the clouds of glory. And that response is the response of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Not one of us, not one of us would be able to dwell in the holy presence of God. Sometimes I think that maybe, and I know that I'm guilty of this, sometimes we think that, well, maybe there's just something a little bit about me, even in the the most minute fashion. There's something just a little bit about me that somehow, draws God's favor upon me. Not one of us, in and of ourselves, would be able to dwell in His holy presence. On the cross, beloved, Jesus was made, as Paul says, He was made to be sin for us. Thus removing our sin from the presence of God so that we might be able to dwell in His presence and to do so with comfort and with joy, to do so without being consumed by His wrath against our sin, to do so enveloped, surrounded, if you will, just like the disciples in that cloud, to be surrounded in His love. The New Testament cross and the Old Testament sacrificial system pointing to the cross show the holiness of God in pouring out His wrath against sin upon the sacrifice for man's salvation. And God's holiness was revealed here in Christ's transfiguration and His clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And notice how Matthew says it in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, and He was transfigured before them and His face shone shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. His face, the glory of Almighty God, showing through the human face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the disciples were allowed to lay their eyes upon the holy purity of God. Some suggest that this is what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again. Paul talks uh, to the Thessalonian believers about the fact that those who have died in Christ will be raised first and then those who are still alive at His coming will be caught up with Him in the air, in that cloud. We will be one day in that Shekinah glory cloud. They were allowed to lay their eyes on the holy purity of God as the radiance of the Lord of glory shone before them. Beloved, why did Jesus have to suffer? Because God is holy. 
And therefore, sin had to be punished, and only God Himself could do it, but also because of God's holy will. His holy being demanded it, and His holy will determined it. When God could have turned His back on all of mankind and on all of His creation, instead, He determined to save a people among those who had turned their back on Him, those who had rejected Him, He determined to save a people for Himself, and He made that determination, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, before the creation of the world. And also there, Paul speaks of God's plan, God's purpose, God's will to save some. And Paul talks about that plan implemented. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And beloved, Isaiah prophesied, indeed, in verse 10, he prophesied that this was indeed the will of God. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of of Almighty God, to cause him to suffer. And again, it was a purposeful determination that he be stricken, that he be smitten by God and afflicted, that he be pierced for our transgressions, that he be crushed for our iniquities, that the Lord lay on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, none of this was by chance. None of this was some sort of second thought or plan B on God's part. None of this was by accident, but it was determined by God for you and for me. Let that soak in for a moment. God, with purposeful determination, planned that our Lord Jesus Christ would do... God chose to do this for you and for me. And he did so with full confidence in his son. This is my son whom I love, or as Matthew says, with whom I am well pleased. God the Father had full confidence that his son would successfully do for us that which we could not even begin to do for ourselves, yet that which we needed more than absolutely anything else in all the world. He had to suffer because God's holy being demanded it. Because God's holy will determined it. And again, it wasn't for nothing. It wasn't just in case. And therefore, in the second place, he had to suffer because of God's people. He had to suffer because of God's people. Again, we needed it. Against humanism that says that man is the measure of all things. That man is the captain of his own ship. The master of his own fate. He had to suffer because of God's people. He had to suffer because of the guilty. We sing at this time of year, Ah, dearest Jesus, who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? And then we include in there, alas, my treason. It's my fault. And we also sing, mine, mine was the transgression. But thine, the deadly pain. We know, we know that our guilt before God because of sin made us objects of His wrath. It made us enemies of Almighty God, and therefore it made us utterly hopeless. And our guilt before God had to be removed, and it could only be removed by the punishment for our sin being endured. And our Lord Jesus Christ did it. 
Very simply, he did it. He endured the entire wrath of God that should have been against you and it should have been against me. He endured all of it for each and every one of his people against every single sin of yours and mine. Even the sin that our God knows that you and I will commit from this moment, even in this service, and throughout the rest of our lives. Now I fear that there are some who really wrongly and dangerously think that hell will not really be that bad. But that somehow it's going to be bearable. Somehow it's going to be doable. That in some way it's going to be endurable. That's not at all what the truth of God's Word says. And all we need to do is remember the cry of our Lord Jesus on the cross, my God, not even my Father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gave his life as a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was perfect, that sacrifice was complete, and that sacrifice was accepted by God. And again, Isaiah in chapter, in verse 10 of chapter 53 says, his soul makes an offering for guilt, an offering again that was freely given, an offering that was in full. Jesus did what we could absolutely never do. No matter how much blood and sweat, no matter how many tears we might shed because of our sin, it's not even a drop. It doesn't even add up to a drop in the ocean of payment that needed to be made. Jesus and Jesus Christ alone has removed our guilt before God so that we are justified. Almighty God looks at you and me in Christ and says, you're not guilty. You were guilty. You were guilty and you were condemned to eternal hell, but you're not guilty anymore. Instead, you are completely righteous in my sight for the sake of Jesus. In Him, our our guilt is removed so that we are justified, we are being sanctified, and that those who were guilty one day will be the glorified. And Paul says, of course, that we're already glorified because, we, because it's a done deal in a sense. But we look forward to that day when we, when we are glorified in the glory of heaven. But we will be the glorified because he suffered. He suffered in order to heal us. Again, Isaiah 53, verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Or as David says again in Psalm 103, one of the benefits that we're not to forget is that he heals all of our diseases. And I trust that we understand that David is not talking about our physical diseases. God might be pleased to heal our physical diseases. But he doesn't always. But David is talking about our spiritual diseases. He is talking about that which is, which is the most deadly for you and me. He's talking about eternal diseases for those who have been brought from eternal death to eternal life. One commentator says the best healing crusade in the world is where the faithfully preached word of God changes even one heart. Again, it's not the healing of the physical body that demonstrates God's love in Christ Jesus. Again, it might. 
but it is the eternal healing of one's soul that demonstrates God's love in Jesus Christ. And beloved, our eternal future includes that our Lord Jesus Christ, by His power, as Paul says in Philippians 2, will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Why did Jesus have to suffer and be treated with contempt or, or be rejected? To perfectly accomplish the salvation of His people, a salvation or planned by God. So that those who by faith hear and heed the call to repent might be completely restored. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, therefore, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life that they will never perish and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He had to do it so that as Paul says, In Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. If He didn't do that, that wouldn't be a possibility for you and me. He had to do so so that God would be satisfied with you and me. He had to do so so that God would take us to be His very own children. He had to do so so that we might have the blessed assurance, even as we sit here tonight, that we belong to Him forever. And He had to do so, beloved, that we might never be rejected by God and that no matter how much you and I might be called upon to suffer in this life, and some of us, I trust, I trust it's true of of, of some here, have been and will be called upon to suffer in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. However, our Lord Jesus Christ had to suffer and be rejected so that we would never, ever suffer the wrath of God against our sin. And most of all, our Lord Jesus had to do so so that God would be glorified because of the wondrous things that He has done. What an encouragement, I I hope and pray, this is for each and every one of us in the strength of the Holy Spirit, encouraged to fight against sin and to strive to keep from sin, knowing that Jesus suffered to pay for it. And therefore showing gratitude to him who suffered and indeed was rejected in your place and in my place. Beloved, he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our honor. He is worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our everything. Is that what we're giving to him? Is that what we're giving to him? Are we giving him absolutely everything? He is worthy, beloved, that we listen to Him. That we listen to Him. That we listen to what His Word says about His suffering. That we listen to what His Word says about the cross of Jesus. That we listen to the truth that that there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. And as the song says, that when I stand in glory, I will see His face. There I'll serve my King forever. In that holy place, we are to listen to Him. Listen to when He says, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Boys and girls, when your parents ask you, as I hope they do later tonight, why did Jesus have to suffer? Why did he have to be rejected? 
I hope that you are able to answer and that you believe and that you answer this way so that I could go to heaven so that I might live with him forever. When washing the disciples' feet, you remember Jesus said to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. To you and me, he says, unless I have suffered for you. And you believe that. And you trust in me. Unless I have suffered for you, you have no part in me. Beloved, to all who trust in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of all of your sins and trust Him for your righteousness before God, you may be assured that by His wounds you are healed. And you are healed forever because He suffered for and He was rejected by God for you so that you will live with Him in glory forever and ever. And all of God's people say, Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we bow at the close of this sermon and as we near the end of this service together, we think about these things that we are getting ready to remember again and to celebrate in a very, very specific way, but yet these truths that are part of our daily lives. Father, may it be that they would not become commonplace to us, that we would not take them for granted but that each and every one of us here, young and old alike, might truly understand that we are called to believe these things. That we are called to have a true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust that the suffering that He endured and the rejection that He was exposed to, that His death on the cross, the punishment that He endured, from Almighty God for our sins was indeed for those who believe and only for those who believe. So, Father, may we have that blessed confidence. May we give you thanks indeed that we are safe in the palm of your hand both now and forever, only for the sake of Jesus. It's in his name alone that we pray these things. Amen.